Thanks for being with us for the latest Grazia life advice. This is Rhiannon Evans with you again with six tips from a brilliant woman. This time, a Canadian comedian, actress and writer who has made London her home. Hello, I'm Catherine Ryan. I'm a comedian and very little else, really. I mean, a waitress. And I'm excited to be with you, Rhiannon, on the Grazia podcast, Life Advice. You need to check out Catherine Ryan's hilarious Netflix series, The Duchess. And now, as host of BBC Two show All That Glitters, with the nail-biting semi-final airing next week, she's dragged us all into a fascination with the world of specialist jewellery making. I mean, you and I are doing the podcast, and you see what I actually look like, which is like a small ginger boy. (laughs) But when I go on stage, I'm really in drag, and I love cocktail rings, and I love sparkle and I love the intrigue that those pieces add so I've always had a great appreciation and it's only grown since all the glitters. Coming up you can expect the usual great advice but also some laughs and forthright opinions. I just feel so lucky that you know I'm not an actor I don't have to be friends with a bunch of strange actors. They scare me Rhiannon because (laughs) they are professional liars. And so many of our worst bits of Grazia Life advice have been about hair. But Catherine's is the first I can remember with such a clever and foolproof solution. I really respect people when I see that they have a fringe. Mm. But it takes a lot of maintenance and I don't have that kind of energy. And I put in my calendar a reminder once a year to say to me, Catherine, you don't look good with a fringe. (laughs) She is brilliant, a firm Grazia favourite, and it was so great to talk to her. Here she comes, Catherine Ryan. Hi, Catherine. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Rhiannon? Good. Lovely to speak to you. Are you at home? What room are we in the house? I mean, I'm always at home. Yes, we have a loft conversion bedroom that we used to save for guests. So you've opened a real can of worms already because my husband and I moved into this home when we were not yet married and it was a big change for my daughter. So my daughter had the master bedroom. My husband had a bedroom. I had another bedroom. And now my husband and I have moved up to the loft together. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And that's where we find you today. That's great. Got a real picture now. I'm really thank you for that. Um, we're here to hear all your advice, but I wanted to speak to you first about all that glitters, which has been on BBC Two for a few weeks, and you can catch up on iPlayer. So it's Tuesdays at eight pm if you haven't seen it yet. It's so good. Can you? Why don't you explain what the show's about? Well, thank you so much for watching it. So it is the search for Britain's next big jeweler, mm. and I love glam and I love jewelry and I really respect designers and makers and artists. And so when the BBC approached me and asked if I wanted to present all the glitters, I think they did it because my tour was called Glitter Room. You know, I've really attached myself to to shiny, pretty things. I thought, oh, I don't know about these mainstream talent show slash competition format programs because I'm a little bit spicy for it. But um, I learned that jewelry making is such a broad industry. There are so many jewelers and goldsmiths and setters like all across the UK. There are apprenticeships. And it gave me such a greater appreciation for the art. So it's just about these amazing jewelers battling it out. And you get to watch them make these beautiful things. Mm. I'm curious about their stories. So you get to know them well. It's fun. It's funny. But most of all, it's very sweet and heartwarming. 
Yeah, it is really sweet. And I know you said you thought you were a bit spicy. I like mm. that you bring the spicy to it because, you know, sometimes those shows need it. But I also, in the episodes I've seen, you seem incredibly sweet. Your role is sometimes to go over there and make sure they're okay because they're trying to do these tiny pieces of jewellery with really shaky hands. And you're. how did you find, like, comforting them and jeeing them on? Well, I don't know how they do it because I was on a Stand Up to Cancer episode of Bake Off mm-hmm. And baking in your home or even watching a quiz show and answering the questions in your home is very different to being on television with a camera in your face. And anytime I go on the chase or catchphrase or the cube or just a number of charity game shows, I'm not great. And on Bake Off, I was nervous too because the judges and the presenters, Matt and Noel, they come and they ask you questions. And I didn't want to make the jewelers more nervous. Certainly, I wanted to use laughter to relieve the tension and to get them back to the task at hand. Yeah. And can you talk about the judges as well? You've got two great judges who super know their stuff and they can sometimes be quite harsh as well. Well, they're very honest. And I Mm. think that comes from being in a workshop with jewelers and having to be the boss um, when you are the creative director of your company, you're going to have to tell people what to do sometimes. So we had Sean Lean, who's been in the industry for decades. He's just a star, has worked Mm -hmm. with Alexander McQueen and has made rings for royalty. And he is such a delight, like funny and camp. And he's got these brilliant suits And his style is very, um, very distinctive. His voice is so clear in his jewelry. He does uh, these really intricate, delicate claws. So there's a real mixture of like textures there. And I just love him. Mm -hmm. And Solange Azaguri Partridge, she has just gems and jewels and these really adventurous, I would call them pieces, displayed in the VNA, and they're just coveted. It's a luxury brand, but she's also got bestseller, more accessible high street pieces that are really, really famous. And the mixture of personalities with the judges, they they strike such a cool balance. And you could tell that the jewelers really respected their work too. So they, they were honest, but I think that they were constructive as well. And you're describing all that lovely jewellery. I mean, did you pick up a really expensive jewellery habit by the end? I've always had an expensive jewellery habit, Rhiannon, but I'm very fortunate I get to borrow things. Okay. So I don't own a lot of jewellery. I own some pieces that have been passed down. I have a really special ring from my grandmother that I don't think is worth a lot of money, but it's emotionally valuable to me. It's sentimental. I think it carries her energy. She was a really glam lady, always put together, really spicy like me. I come from a long line of women who would have been burned as witches. (laughs) I don't know. Some of us must have slipped out. Yeah. Because we can fly and float. (laughs) And um, I think that's who I am on stage I mean, you and I are doing the podcast and you see what I actually look like, which is like a small ginger boy. (laughs) But when I go on stage, I'm really in drag and I love cocktail rings and I love sparkle and I love the intrigue that those pieces add. So I've always had a great appreciation and it's only grown since all that glitters. So your first piece of advice is to never argue with an idiot. And I think that's brilliant. So tell me about how that came to you. 
I think I heard it first on Dr. Phil, who is kind of a discredited (laughs) TV psychologist. (laughs) When I was younger, he was Oprah's protege. And I remember he said a woman was trying to get her point across with her ex-husband and and he wasn't understanding. She was wasting all this energy trying to make this man see her point of view. And she sounded like a fool by the end. And he Mm -hmm. said, never argue with an idiot. Otherwise, people can't tell who's the idiot. And it's so true. It's like, it's actually a very passive form of narcissism, I think, to insist that someone else understand your point of view, even if it's right. So Mm -hmm. I don't need to be understood in my life. I really don't. I deliver, you know, I articulate myself to the best of my abilities. And if that is misunderstood or even willfully misunderstood, or if someone doesn't see eye to eye with me, then that's all right. And uh, in many cases, especially in your personal life, Mm. you do not need to waste the energy arguing with an idiot. No. And does that come into play daily for you when you're on social media, you know, when we're <laughs> out of COVID and back on stage and there's hecklers in the audience? Is that something that you use quite a lot? I love hecklers in the audience. I think often they make the show better and they make it spontaneous. And that is the ingredient of live comedy that one cannot achieve through television or streaming services. Yeah. But past a certain point, it's it's not to say that you shouldn't debate But when you can see that someone is a fool and Mm. they have absolutely dug their heels in and they have no interest, it's like these guys, I don't know if you've seen the memes, they'll set up a little rented table and chairs and they'll sit there with a coffee and there'll be a sign that says, feminism is cancer, change my mind. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, no thanks. Yeah. I don't care to change your mind. You know, you never argue with those idiots. So I do get some of them online and uh, I don't, I feel this freedom. I don't feel an impulse to be understood at Mm. all. I'm fine with letting that lie. That is really freeing. I'd never really thought of it like that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Can we move on to your second piece of advice? (laughs) Can you share what this is, please? Yes. My second piece of advice is never hang around in parking lots. Okay. Don't hang around in parking lots. <laughs> so sensible advice, but let's have some more context. Who told you this? Why my, is it good advice? My uncle told me that when I was really small. I never understood it myself for a long time. There was no context. He would <laughs> just take me to ice cream or I would see him over the holidays. And when he dropped me off, he would say, oh, by the way, don't hang around in parking lots. And I oh, thought, right. okay. And I didn't really ask what he meant. But I remembered it because it was sort of his catchphrase with me. Don't hang around in parking lots. And then as I got older and I started going to bars and clubs and out with my friends and things, it was one of those pieces of advice that resonated because it was deposited into my mind when I was so small. I just thought, don't hang around in parking lots. Nothing good comes from hanging around in parking lots. Don't loiter. Don't hang around in parking lots. It's great advice. It doesn't have to be complicated. I know I love it and it won't surprise you to hear that that's the first time we've had that piece of advice in the podcast (laughs) so thank you originality but it goes you know you were saying that he said it a lot when you're younger and it's stuck in your head I was talking to someone the other day who said now they encourage mantras in children in the sense that if you say things over and over again it will stick I mean 
you know, that was valuable. Is that something you ever do? Do you ever try and impress mantras on your daughter? I did that all the time when she was younger. On purpose, I would say, I trust Violet. Violet makes good choices. I would say that all the time. There would be a dog uh, on a patio. You know, I have a very pub-centered life. (laughs) So a lot of my stories would be like, when I had a toddler drinking on the patio, and there would be a dog laying down, and Violet would go near the dog, and the owner would say, oh, yeah, it's a friendly dog. I would never worry that Violet would pull the dog or irritate the dog. When Violet was in earshot, purposely, I would say, I trust her to be gentle. Violet makes good choices. Or anything she'd do around the house from Mm. infancy, I'd say, that's really great. You know, you make good choices. You make good choices. That was super deliberate that I would say that to her. And I thought, she makes terrible choices. She's three. You know, (laughs) she makes a load of terrible. But if you continue that mantra... I think one day, you know, now she's nearly 12, her friends will say, do you want to go hang around the parking lots? And Violet's brain will go, oh, I make good choices. Is this a good choice? I love that. That's a great one. That's Mm. brilliant. And your third piece of advice, again, very simple and makes a lot of sense. Tell me why straight home is on your list. You won't be surprised to learn that this is also from my uncle. Okay. He would say straight home, don't hang around in parking lots. And... (laughs) Two parts. Yeah, it's a two-part lesson, but they are separate lessons, and it's just to keep you safe and to keep you on track. And if you go out to a party or you're drinking with friends, that second location is never a good idea. Yeah. And nothing very good happens after about midnight. So when someone suggests on the way home, oh, you know what we should do? We should go down by the quarry. And rollerblade. (laughs) No, straight home. No detours. Yeah. Or someone's house Mm -hmm. or somewhere strange to eat. Mm. I think if you have an impulse to go home, then you stick to it. You go straight home and you don't let yourself be derailed. Is that one that you find yourself sticking to or have you found yourself derailed? On the way home sometimes. I've been derailed for sure. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not as much fun as I used to be. I don't have as much energy, but certainly as a teenager, because mm. we would start drinking and going to bars, you know, in my small town. Was it early 2000s yet? It was. It was just the year 2000, I think, when I started drinking. I was 16, 17. Mm. Then we really got it all out of our system by the time we were 25. By 25, I had a newborn, and I was very sensible and professional. But in my early 20s, late teens, I needed to remind myself all the time, straight home. If we deviated from that, there was always trouble. We lived on the border of America. Uh, America's like a three-minute drive away from my Canadian town. And we would jump in the river, try to swim to America. I mean, you get shot for less these days. But we did all sorts of things after the bar. And no, straight home, my uncle would say. And he was not wrong. And I think for a lot of us, our survival depends on that advice during those teenage years. Yeah, especially if you're thinking about swimming into America. Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever go back to that small town? Do you have family there still? I have more family there than ever because I married my high school boyfriend last year. His family are sexually incontinent. And they have so many kids. Right, yeah. And they have multiplied. A lot of my family left because my dad's from Ireland and my mom was from a bigger city. Mm-hmm. 
my sisters have left, my mother has left, and now I've married into a family right. who populate probably half of Sarnia. So I'll be back. Wow. I'll go and for a swim. <laughs> yeah. Have you let them know straight home? Don't hang around in parking lots. Have you passed it on? Yes, because now I have like 40 nieces and nephews. So I'm going to have to tell them about, you know, it's difficult to admit to all the mistakes because they use it against you. They don't learn from it past a certain age. They'll say, Mm -hmm. well, you did this and you did that. And I'll say, yeah, and some of us lost limbs doing that. (laughs) I'll introduce you to, you know, (laughs) my friends. We didn't all make it out. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We'll be back with more advice from Catherine after this. We're still here with Catherine, and I'm really interested in this piece of advice. Explain your fourth piece of advice to me. My fourth piece of advice is don't ask questions if the answer A, doesn't matter, or B, is going to be a lie. Right. And I think this is maybe my most favorite piece of advice. Mm. Because you can just get lost in these circular conversations. And I have personally made some bad decisions in romantic relationships. But I think I would be gaslit is the term now. I don't think we had a term for it while I was being gaslit. Mm. But I would need resolution. And I would say, why have you done this? Or why didn't you think to let me know? Or how did you think that I'd be fine with you seeing sex workers? Or, mm. you know, I would ask, where did where were you? All these questions. If you know in your hardest of hearts and your deep intuition that the answer really doesn't change the outcome or crucially if that answer is going to be a lie Mm. then don't disrespect your own time by asking the question and it streamlines Rhiannon your entire life I ask so few questions now and my daughter is 12 years old and she's entering you know the phase of young female friendships getting really complicated and they ask all these questions well why would you do this and what were you thinking and why where and you don't need to ask most questions that you'd ask yeah and when you think about now passing on piece of advice and and saying that you know you mentioned to your daughter and relationships is it hard sometimes to step away and know that they need to get there themselves I mean that's that's the worst thing for a parent really isn't it Yes, I was very lucky to be able to create The Duchess on Netflix, which is my comedy drama series. I mean, I think it's a comedy comedy series. I really don't think it's it's drama. You should definitely watch it if you've not watched it yet. That's kind of you to say. But I play this really problematic version of myself, which is a heightened, like real comedy version of myself. But I think that was cathartic because... That woman really goes after other children, other moms. She's really vengeful. And that's like a fantasy, but we can't really behave that way because our own children are not perfect and they do have to sort it out themselves. So I think had I not been able to uh, have that catharsis with the Duchess, I might be in prison now because my daughter (laughs) goes to secondary school and I needed to step away And now I don't involve myself. I'm a nice mom now on the school run. Oh, could I ask you, I mean, probably, it sounds probably to you, sounds like a mad question, but do you find it difficult when you put elements of your life into a comedy, exaggerated elements of things, do people start to read that as what you're like and expect you to be? 
Definitely. And that is true with stand-up, but it was even more true with The Duchess. It was mm. so fascinating to me that a lot of reviewers were horrified by this terrible woman. They were like, well, she's done this, and she said that, and she's really horrible. Meanwhile, I'm super laid back and woke and left-wing, and I don't do any of those horrible things, but they found it, I think, really difficult to separate that character from my real life or to see that it was hyperbole or to see that it was ironic exposition of a position or to see that I was making a comedy. And I love Kenny Powers, um, Eastbound and Down. I love these old comedy characters that were just really problematic. And I hadn't seen a woman like that, just Mm. swearing and fighting and being a dick. (laughs) And I I wanted to make that. And I think you see her vulnerability, but if you're not used to digesting a, a, a woman like that and you can't manage yeah. to see through it, then you just go, well, there's a, that woman is a bitch. Um, I love the idea that people are afraid of me and they think that I'm this drag and that only helps me. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> just everyone nervous at the school gate. <laughs> I just think it's an overcorrection. Mm-hmm the other way, but using men. And the man that I cast is my friend Jeff Norcott, and he's such a funny comedian. But that character, Brian, he doesn't speak once in the entire series. (laughs) I just wanted a man there for decoration, and I wanted him to be objectified, and I wanted Catherine to (laughs) use the threat of his seduction against her enemies. Because I thought it was funny, but that might have been too meta for people. They're just like, why? Why would she just want to fuck my husband? And now some women in the school run are scared that I'm going to try to seduce their husbands. And I, I think that's good. Yeah. It's, I might. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, let's move on to your fifth piece of advice. My fifth piece of advice came from my mother. And she said, Catherine, if we all liked the same thing, we'd all be married to your father. Yeah. And I think this applies to all that glitters or any subjective uh, creative pursuit Mm. is that I think it's fine when people dislike my art or my work. We are different and that's a really beautiful thing. We have different interests and we can have different opinions and it's okay not to be liked. I think women especially We're told to be good and to be kind and to be polite and to be well-liked and not to be difficult. And uh, I think it's all right if people don't like you. And my mother always said, we all like different things. If we all liked the same thing, we'd all be married to your father. And it was such a clear, concise way for me to be like, gross. Yeah. No, absolutely. It must be, if you really sit in that position and, you know, you totally own that, it must be so, again, to back to what you were saying earlier, that's really freeing, right? That cuts out like 10% of your daily problems. It certainly does. And it takes out any offense or any hurt that Mm. I think people are reacting to when they receive a bad review or someone registers their displeasure online. I don't take that personally at all because I really feel like people are entitled to dislike what I do. I really just don't care. It removes a lot of the hard part of this job. I think I do have peers and friends who feel wounded 
mm. when people dislike them. And I just think it's part of the job. I think, well, I tell them, if we all like the same thing, we'd all be married to your father. And they don't really get what are, where I'm coming from. <laughs> They're like, your father? Yep. And yeah, yeah. my mom's a lovely woman, but her tastes are different to mine because <laughs> I wouldn't want to marry Finbar. Do you, <laughs> do you have quite a Zen life? I mean... It seems from, you know, if you can sit with that, you can sit with not arguing with people, you know, when they're causing you problems. Do you, do you find, are you quite a calm person? Yes. And I probably wasn't always that way. I think hormonally, even when I was younger, I certainly didn't have this level of um, Buddhist understanding about everyone's feelings. But I genuinely, almost to the point of mental illness, really don't have any anxiety. Sometimes I worry. I go, I should surely be hurt by that. I don't care. I do want people to be well. I don't want to offend people. I want people to be taken care of and fruitful and happy. And I want those things for people. So when I see news stories that I think are unjust, I I get sad. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my own ego and people liking me or disliking me, I'm really zen and easy about it. And I don't have arguments and my life is really chill. Yeah, fantastic. Your final piece of good advice, I guess, is is sim is kind of almost linked to that. Ooh, my final piece of advice. And this applies a lot to professional life mm-hmm. or any relationship that you feel is a commitment. And that is the only thing worse than wasting two years is wasting two years plus one day. Yeah. Because I've heard from people who say, while I work in computer systems analyzing and I don't love it, but I have job security, I hate every day of my life. Yes, I've been chained Mm -hmm. to a desk for 20 years, but I've invested all this time and so I can't leave. Or they'll be married and they'll say, well, it's been, you know, eight years. I I wouldn't know what to do, even though I'm terribly unhappy and I don't... (laughs) And these people, I think, feel trapped by the investment that they've made. And if you imagine yourself in a casino, sitting at a slot machine, pulling the handle, that slot machine will give you a few quarters now and then. Mm. And you don't want to leave because you think, if I walk away from the slot machine, the next person who sits down will get the jackpot. But the house always wins. There's no jackpot. If you've been sat at that slot machine, you have been losing quarters You get a few back to keep you there, but there will never be a jackpot. Just walk away. Just walk away. If you're genuinely unhappy, don't think about the time that's passed. Think about the time that's come. And the only thing worse than wasting two years is two years plus one day. Mm. Investment is a great word and I guess brings a whole different perspective to it, doesn't it? Because you think, well, yeah, I'm only going to be investing more if I keep wasting my time. Are you quite good at cutting? Have you cut cut out friendships and things in the past? Yep. (laughs) No, luckily I've not had to cut out friendships, really. I have really a wonderful, strong group of friends. I'm so lucky to be a comedian, actually, because I think comics are just some of the most generous and humble and layered people. I just feel so lucky that, you know, I'm not an actor. I don't have to be friends with a bunch of strange actors. They scare me, Rhiannon, because (laughs) they are professional liars. (laughs) And... (laughs) I'm sure a lot of actors are nice, but I don't like their superpower of being able to, you know, pretend to be Leonardo da Vinci. Like, that creeps me out. So (laughs) 
<laughs> and I saw Kristen Stewart in an interview once, and she's a wonderful actor. But someone said to her, oh, you have time off coming up. That'll be nice. And she said, no, because if I'm not given a script, I don't know who to be. God. And that scared me a lot. So I think comedians, to a fault, uh, know exactly who to be. They're too authentic. But I love that. If this pandemic has taught us anything, if you want to look at it in a positive way, something very terrible came out of nowhere. And I don't think any of us really saw the extent of it coming, certainly. And we didn't think that all these businesses would shut down and we'd be in our homes for a year and people would lose their lives and there'd be all this vaccine chat. We didn't see that coming. But to me, that just means that really wonderful surprises can be around the corner as well, because there's always a yin and a yang to everything. So if you're unhappy in your job or you have a toxic friendship or a relationship, you cannot think about the investment lost because you're just pouring more, as you said, into a failed venture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We always finish with the worst advice people have been given. Um, often is helpful and does quite often involve hair, as yours does. So no! <laughs> tell me what yours, tell me what the worst piece of advice you ever got was. The worst piece of advice I ever received was, you would look great with a fringe. <laughs> right. And did you not look good with a fringe? Was that no, I didn't. No. And, you know, it's the commitment to a fringe because on the day that it's cut, mm -hmm. it's lovely, but it's too high maintenance. And once you're finished with the fringe, there's a regrowth period where you have to be using these clips and getting creative with your side parting and... I really respect people when I see that they have a fringe mm. because, oh, I mean, lockdown must have been absolute torture for them because they had to manage that fringe all along. But it takes a lot of maintenance and I don't have that kind of energy. And I put in my calendar a reminder once a year to say to me, Catherine, you don't look good with a fringe. <laughs> I need that because I feel like the, what you're touching on there is that fringes never let you go. Even if mm. you have lived through a fringe and a bad fringe, every now and then you'll think, maybe a fringe. Yeah. You, can never, never, you can never get away from it. A reminder on my phone, I might do that. Mm. And once a year, every January, it pops up and it goes, hey, idiot, don't get a fringe. And actually, so we've ended up there on another great piece of advice. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on Grazia Life Advice. Thank you, Rhiannon. I've had a lovely chat. It really was a lovely chat. Do check out All That Glitters on BBC Two and Catherine's stand-up shows on Netflix. As ever, please share this episode with friends and tell them they need to listen. We'd love you to rate and review Grazia Life Advice in your podcast player too. Thanks so much for being with us. In our next episode, we'll have poet Nikita Gill sharing her best life advice. I'm serial monogamer. <laughs> which is which is I think I've never really said that out loud on a on a public platform before but I, I invest all of myself into another person because I see that person as a part of this relationship but it's something that become makes you quite codependent in many ways see you in two weeks time for that take care until then <laughs>